we don't allow our younger generation to fail. We don't, we don't allow them to experience hurt. We don't uh, allow our kids to experience embarrassment. We don't allow our kids to handle conflict. We don't let our kids problem solve. All of the things that make a fully functioning adult our kids are just not experiencing at the level that they have in the past. Right. And this isn't me being the old guy that's saying, oh, the younger generation's the problem. No, parents, we're the problem. Yeah. We are the problem because we're not allowing these kids to figure out what it looks like to be resilient that's in right. a time that we desperately need resilient human beings. Yeah. yeah, there's a quote in the book that we'll get to later on, but it's, I think it sums up perfectly what you're saying. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Just quit trying to repave everything and prepare your child for what they're going to face. So I mentioned this earlier, Tyler, that reading was never really something I did. I didn't like reading in school. It wasn't really something I did in college. And then getting out of college, is, I mean, I would read articles, but like actual hardcover book yeah. was not really something I did. Yeah. And I don't remember the, the, the switch that, I think it was actually our coworker. I hate to give him all the credit. <laughs> I know where you're going. I hate to give him all the credit, but our coworker, Roy, <laughs> shout out to Roy if you're listening. Roy Reese. Hey, he's, he's provided two very, very key uh, contributions to the One Shot Podcast. Oh, he's he, Gave he you might to be, read, yeah, and then also uh, one of our last guests. He might be our MVP consumer. I mean, listener. as far as <laughs> as far as the month of May is concerned, for sure, he's in the running. <laughs> but Roy Reese reads. I think. I mean, it's something crazy. I mean, at least like a two book books a week. At least a book for sure. It's wild. He's got two kids. I don't know how he fits it all in. I mean. Clearly, he hates his kids and his wife, so <laughs> that's why he has time to read. But <laughs> no, I, 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 I hate, but no, seriously, he reads all the time. And he yeah. got me into reading a couple yeah. of years ago. And I say all that, say all that backstory is I've found the book of all the books I've read. Mm. I've found probably my favorite book yeah. that I've read so far in this two year journey. So, can I admit something about reading? Please. There was probably. I don't read so good. It was probably a 10-year period where the only reading I did was menus. Wow. I mean, not that's kidding. that's not fat, I don't know what it is. Not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you look up fat in the dictionary, it's I only read menus. It's, it's the only thing I read is menus. <laughs> <laughs> but I was the same way, honestly, truly. Yeah, yeah. But the value, and the way I describe it, and, and Roy and I talked about this, is you're telling me that for $20, let's just throw that number out there. For $20, I can get three years of somebody's life work or mm. longer mm. for 20 bucks. I can get every story, everything they've researched the last three years, every lesson they've learned. I can get that for 20 bucks. That's what you're telling me yeah. by reading a book. Mm. I'm in. That's the value of a book to me. So you put it that way. Now it makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> what about <laughs> listening to a book? It's see, I, I've done both. Yeah. To me, my brain is not like I, I get just too distracted when I'm listening to audiobooks. Okay. Because usually I'm doing something. Usually yeah. I'm working out, I'm driving, 
So my mind's on other things. I can't focus. When I'm reading, now it's easy for my to let my mind drift. Yeah. <laughs> so that's hard sometimes yeah, to stay yeah. focused. Uh-huh. But for me, it is a little easier when I can touch it. I can feel it. I yeah. can write. I can underline. I yeah. can highlight. I can make notes. To me, that's a more engaging way to consume the information. I get more out of it. Yeah, my wife's typically. the same way. I, I mean, and I and I think I'm a note taker as well, but uh, I've just found the last couple of years uh, I've become more of an audible learner. Yeah. Which is interesting because right. I, I didn't think that I was necessarily. As long as you're getting the value of yeah. whatever way you consume, yeah. I think that's the point. So anyway, what so book Netflix. am I talking about? So Netflix is pretty much the same thing. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. It took about a year to produce that. <laughs> <laughs> so what book am I talking about? And I've teased this a little bit. If you don't follow us on Instagram, shame on you. We've teased this a little bit. But the book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. If that title enough doesn't get you sold, I don't know what will. It's written by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. And if Jonathan Haidt sounds familiar, we actually read an article of his a few weeks back that was somewhat around the same premise. And and the title of that article was Why American Life Has Become Uniquely Stupid the Last 10 Years. That's Jonathan Haidt, same same writer. So after that episode, my brother reached out to me. I didn't even know my brother listened to the podcast. So shout out to my oldest brother who lives up in Portland. He said, hey, love that episode. Have you read his book? I said, no, but I'm intrigued. And so he told me about this book. And this book was actually written in 2018. But what's interesting is a lot of the principles he talks in here. Uh, I guess my point in saying that, it would be interesting to hear this book now, now. in yeah. 2022, yeah. pre or post-pandemic. Because all this book, this book was written before the pandemic. But a lot of the things he talks about. Yeah, prophesizing. Is that the word? I think so. Prof- right? prof- Isn't prof- that the word? That's the prophesizing? Word. I don't think that's the word. It's a word. Prophetic? Prophetic? Prophesizing. Prophesizing. Is that the word, Will? Okay. Yeah. Look that up while we're Hey, all these these books that you're learning? (laughs) Come on, bro. I'm a you Googleizer. Come on, man. (laughs) Learn those words. One who speaks at funerals? Words, words, (laughs) you Googleizer. (laughs) So anyway, this book was fantastic. And I think part of the reason it's such a good book in my opinion, and why I think it's the best book I've read, I think it's because it's hit me at a time of life that's perfect for me. Yeah. I'm a parent now. Mm-hmm. All this crazy shit we're going through the last few years, this book just punched me in the face. And I think yeah. it's a very popular book. A lot of people have read it, but I think, and I told you this earlier, you know, I'm, I'm against mandates most, most, mostly. But if I was going to mandate something, it would be fitness. Ooh. And everybody has to read this book. Every okay. parent has to read this book. And so what I wanted to do was this one first. (laughs) I already used my audible credit. (laughs) (laughs) And so what I wanted to do was just like we did with atomic habits and just like we did with extreme ownership. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do for lack of a better term, a book review and go through and highlight the main points. By book review, you mean book report, book report. That's right. And highlight the main points of this book. Again, the point of this, these next few episodes is not to replace you reading the book. It's a great start. We're going to highlight but we can't possibly cover everything in these next few episodes. So I would highly encourage that you go out and you pick it up, especially if you're a parent, that you go out and pick it up yourself. And so what's the point of the book? As the title says, it talks about there's been a change in specifically universities, which is where he spends a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But we can apply this to society at large. Yeah. 
there's been a change, and, and he pinpoints it back to 2013. There's been a change in the way you, the university system is run. And basically the idea is we've gotten, for lack of a better term, soft as a university system, as a culture, based on the way that we raised that generation of kids. Mm -hmm. He talks about that generation of kids was the first generation ever to have an iPhone through the most formative part of their lives. So now they have access to everything. They have, you know, reach that they never had before. They have information they never had before. And so what that caused starting in 2013, which is that first class of freshmen who were raised with the iPhone, what that's caused is some downstream effects that aren't headed, heading us into a positive direction if we keep going down that way. Mm-hmm. And again, the last two years have been an amplification of that, of what's really started back in 2013. And so this book is just a framework of how do we turn the tide? What's the problem? Now what do we do with the problem? And so again, that's why this book I thought was just such a valuable resource for the time that we're living in right now. I want to take a quick break and thank our partners Sleep Number and highlight a couple of things they're doing. Guys, these Sleep Number beds are unreal. The technology that they've created, the feedback that it gives you on your sleep. I've got the app opened up right here. They tell you things like your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your breathing rate, all these type uh, metrics and feedback to give you so that you can improve your quality of sleep. They're all over the place. You can go and check yourself out at Sleep Number store wherever you live. Go to sleepnumber.com as well. They've got great resources on there. We just talked about this not too long ago. They have a whole blog section, all these articles, things that you can improve your health. Sleep Number is definitely changing the game when it comes to betting. So get yourself to Sleep Number, get yourself to sleepnumber.com and check them out. Now back to the episode. So the book opens up. Uh, in the intro, and it says, coddling means overprotecting. Adults are doing far more these days. And sorry, let me pause real quick. If you remember the Atomic Habits series, if you remember the Extreme Ownership series, there's going to be a lot of reading because <laughs> he says a lot better than we can. There's so, a lot of posts in us. this book, and I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Just, just get, for hey, your mind at ease, we're not going through hey, all these today. Get, get comfy. <laughs> get comfy. You have to listen to my voice reading you this book. So, again, more encouragement to go out and get it yourself. But says, adults are doing far more these days to protect children, and their overreach might be having some negative effects. Dictionary definitions of coddle emphasize this overprotection. For example, to treat with extreme or excessive care or kindness. The fault lies with adults and with institutional practices, hence our subtitle, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That is exactly what this book is about. We will show you how well-intentioned overprotection from peanut bans in elementary schools through speech coach on college campuses may end up doing more harm than good. Comfort and physical safety are boons to humanity, but they bring some costs too. We adapt to our new and improved circumstances and then lower the bar for what we count as intolerable levels of discomfort and risk. So that's what this book's about, is this generation that we've coddled and overprotected, and how that now that's coming out into light, into society. Those kids are now coming into the workforce. This is where cancel culture comes from. So that's what this book is about. So thoughts from you so far after that extremely long introduction? No, I mean, couldn't come at a, at a better time. And, and again, the fact that this was written pre-pandemic, we've, we've gone even more extreme, I think, since. 
on the protective coddling and um, we, d we don't allow our younger generation to fail. We don't, we don't allow them to experience hurt. We don't uh, allow our kids to experience embarrassment. We don't allow our kids to handle conflict. We don't let our kids problem solve. All of the things that make a fully functioning adult our kids are just not experiencing at the level that they have in the past. Right. And this isn't me being the old guy that's saying, oh, the younger generation's the problem. No, parents, we're the problem. Yeah. We are the problem because we're not allowing these kids to figure out what it looks like to be resilient that's in right. a time that we desperately need resilient human beings. Yeah. yeah, there's a quote in the book that we'll get to later on, but it's, I think it sums up perfectly what you're saying. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Just quit trying to repave everything and prepare your child for Gosh, what they're going to face. So true. And so he opens the book, the first section, he, he breaks the book apart in four different sections. And the first section is all about what they call the three great untruths. And so we're going to go through those three great untruths in this episode today. And so the great, the untruth, sorry. The first great untruth is the untruth of fragility. Last two years have taught us this. We'll get to it in a second. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And he opens it up and he says, thanks to hygiene, antibiotics, and too little outdoor play, children don't get exposed to microbes as they once did. This may lead them to develop immune systems that overreact to substances that aren't actually threatening, causing allergies. In the same way, by shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills they will one day have to master. This brings us to the first great untruth, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Teaching kids that failures, insults, and painful experiences will do lasting damage is harmful in and of itself. Human beings need physical and mental challenges and stressors or we deteriorate. Mm -hmm. So here's an example on the allergy side. Uh, so Rocco, my youngest, uh, he, was, he was breaking out. Maybe he was like two or three. Um, and he was breaking out. He had like skin stuff. So we had him like tested for allergies. And it, and it showed that he had an allergy to almonds. Um, Tiff had actually developed an allergy to almonds up through that pregnancy. And so we had to be careful with almonds because he would just break out, right? Well, I think culture now, we're saying, oh, he's, he can never have almonds, like ever, ever. Well, a year later, Tiffany and I were like, okay, let's, let's see this. Let's see how it is. Well, a year later, we put almonds in his diet, and he was fine. Mm-hmm. There is resilience. Like the human body, it is, it is made to adapt. It is made to handle, like he said, stresses. And we could have had him go his entire life. Let your teacher know nobody in the classroom can bring almonds because our son is allergic to them. And, but we were like, no, no, no. Let's, let's give it to him a little bit at a time. And, yeah, like we, first time we did it is we gave him one almond. Mm -hmm. And we had him eat it. And... And, okay, we're going to monitor, be safe. I'm not saying don't be, don't be reckless out there. But at the same time, okay, let's introduce it. Okay, next, next couple of days we gave him two or three. Okay, now we gave him a handful. 
no reaction. Okay, now he eats almonds, almond butter, whatever. Yeah. Like he's fine, mm. and we just we just don't give that opportunity. We say, oh no 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 no. He just his body doesn't handle it. Let's let's keep that away from him altogether. Yep. That's and, funny you you open with that because or that's funny you say share that because I know you haven't read this book. Mm. Hey, that's exactly how he opens up this book is the peanut allergy mm. and he calls it a pandemic or epidemic. Yeah. And he shares a story. They were taking their young son to daycare. Mm -hmm. The teacher said, hey, nobody can even bring anything resembling peanuts because we have some allergies in the class. And that's exactly what he talks about. The way to break that allergy is actually exposure. Mm -hmm. Small micro exposure Mm -hmm. over time leads to overcoming that allergy. That's exactly what you're talking about. So you're a brilliant scientist. I mean, whatever. (laughs) Smartest person alive. You're a Scientologist. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, not same thing. <laughs> so he says the foolishness of over t- overprotection is apparent as soon as you understand the concept of anti-fragility. Given that risks and stressors are natural, unavoidable parts of life, parents and teachers should be helping kids develop their innate abilities to grow and learn from such experiences. There's an old saying, oh, I, I jumped the gun here. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. But these days, we seem to be doing precisely the opposite. We're trying to clear away anything that might upset children, not realizing that in doing so, we're repeating the peanut allergy mistake, which is what I touched on a second ago. If we protect children from various classes of potentially upsetting experiences, we make it far more likely that those children will be unable to cope with such events when they leave our protective umbrella. The modern obsession with protecting young people from, quote-unquote, feeling unsafe is, we believe, one of the several causes of the rapid rise of rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. So, it's here's what it comes down to, and, and we'll, we'll hit on this a little bit more later on, I'm sure. But as parents, it's easier, it's easier to go out and pave the road for your mm-hmm. kids, as opposed to dealing with your kid when he falls on his bike in the bump in the road. Right. Yep. The law is least, least effort. We talked about it yesterday. That's exactly <laughs> right. And so it's easier just to do it for your kid or protect your kid. And that's, that's what it's, it's honestly, it's, it's sad right now. And, and I'm speaking to myself because I do this as well. There's things that I do that I'm like, gosh, I, they need to learn this. But it's easier just to say no. Like, okay, for example, it's easier... For me to tell my, my boys that are like obsessed with riding their ATVs right now, it's easier for me to just know you can't ride them because then I've got to go out and just like have an eye mm-hmm. on them, mm-hmm. right? As I ride around the neighborhood. And it's just easier to say no because it's easier for me, right? As opposed to what's better for them? letting them go out and experience and, you know, wreck their ATV and break their wrist like Luca did. I mean, <laughs> those are learning experiences now that he had to go through. That he knows, oh, hey, I can't just cut through a field that I've never been through before. Right. Because he was actually allowed to go do that. And, yeah, it sucks, but yeah, part of it. Yeah, it sucks, but what's a better lesson? You telling yeah. him, don't do that, yeah. or him having to break his – Now, again, that's not fun. It's yeah. unfortunate. It sucks yeah. for you. It sucks for him. Yeah. But he's going to remember that from that's now right. on. Because he remembers it. how much it sucked to break his that's wrist. Right. Uh, this next section, he talks about a term called safetyism. Mm-hmm. And I want you to listen to this reading through the lens of the last two years and just see if they're because again he wrote this book before covid so listen to this what i'm about to read through the lens of covid 
Research on post-traumatic growth shows that most people report becoming stronger or better in some way after suffering through a traumatic experience. That doesn't mean we should stop protecting young people from potential trauma, but it does mean that the culture of safetyism is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature and the dynamics of trauma and recovery. A culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. This is what we mean when we talk about safetyism. Safety is good, of course, and keeping others safe from various harm from harm is virtuous, but virtues can become vices when carried to extremes. Safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value, which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. When children are raised in a culture of safetyism, which teaches them to stay quote-unquote emotionally safe while protecting them from every imaginable danger, it may set up a feedback loop. Kids become more fragile and less resilient, which signals adults that they need more protection, which then makes them even more fragile and less resilient. The end result may be similar to what happened when we tried to keep kids safe from exposure to peanuts, a widespread backfire effect in which the quote-unquote cure turns out to be the primary cause of the disease. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't scream COVID, yep. I don't know what does. Well, and, and, and again, I want to be sensitive that, that COVID was a serious thing. I'm not saying it wasn't, but what I'm saying is we damned everything, literally everything for a disease that was attacking, unfortunately, the most vulnerable of our population. There was other ways looking now again, armchair quarterback hindsight's 2020. Yeah. There's other ways we could have protected the vulnerable, but now we are literally paying for a culture of safetyism through inflation through a bad economy or potentially a bad economy. We're paying for that now because we were so gung-ho about safety. That's what, I, that's what bothered me the entire time was the, how many times the word safety. We want to keep you safe. Yeah. And again, I get it. It was, a, it was an infectious disease. I'm not downplaying that it affected people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we shut the entire world down because we were so sensitive and had such a culture of safetyism. Yeah. Um, thank you for being politically correct and making sure that you, you touch that. Um, but, but I agree. So here's what, what was the, one of the big, big topics, you know, six months into the pandemic was, Hey, we've got to get herd immunity. We've got to get herd immunity. We got to get herd immunity. Yes. Like we're talking in, in this, in this, uh, snippet that you just read, we, we're talking about like emotional safety. We're talking about all these other things, but like, let's just go back to the physical. When we were growing up and prior to that, if one of your siblings got chicken pox, what did your parents do? we just, I, I was around 19 of my cousins when I had chicken pox. Yeah. You, you got to expose it. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what my parents did was, okay, all the kids you're getting in the bath yep. together. Yep. You guys are going, we're going to all get this we're exposure. and we're going to move on. And yeah. what c- comes out on the other side? You have an immunity now to chickenpox. You yep. can't get it again. Right. Talking about the peanut allergy. Okay. Hey, you, 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 uh, supplement it. You get it in there. You start to, you start to build the tolerance. Like he said, that is the cure 
to the actual ailment. Mm -hmm. Same deal as like with the with the pandemic and we early on, yes, different strands and okay, yeah, you can, we learned that you can get it a second time. But first and foremost, I think across the board, the first round was by far the worst mm -hmm. on people. And then the second was not as bad and not as bad because your body has learned how to fight that virus. And if you're not allowing your body to figure out how to fight that virus, then when it does and you protect it, and you don't expose it to anything. You don't, I mean, this is the same thing with parents like that are like the, the helicopter parents that like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't pick up that food on the ground. You're, it's going to kill you. No, <laughs> it's going to make their immune system stronger. Like, look, yes, I, I get it. Like there's maybe, a line. Maybe pick the hairs off, but. Yeah, there's a line, right? I get it. But like, you can't freak out right. over the fact that like, hey, they picked up a Cheerio off the ground and ate it after they just dropped it. Like mm -hmm. it is what it is. Like. There's a, there's a value of training, just like we talk about training your body, like from a physical fitness standpoint. Like you train your body, you train your mind, you train your emotions with resistance. Mm -hmm. That's the only way, sharp, iron sharpens iron. You have to actually have some sort of resistance in order to get stronger. And that's across the board, whether that's relationally, whether that's physically, all these things that I just mentioned. But we just no, 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 no resistance. Now we just have soft, unresilient, sick kids. Yep. We've taken all the struggle yeah. or as much of the struggle out of it yeah. as we can. And so that's the first great untruth is that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. All right, I want to take a quick minute to talk about our partner, Choctaw Casino and Resort. Uh, we are really, really humbled uh, and grateful to be a partner for them. If you've listened to the show for any amount of time, uh, you've heard how great the resort is there, how great the casino is, the new expansion. They've doubled in size, 3,000 new slots. They've got unbelievable sports bar. They've got unbelievable restaurants, unbelievable movie theaters, arcades for kids. It is endless, the things that they've not only improved but added. Um, but it's just an the, the experience that they provide is second to none. Choctaw Nation has done an incredible job with the community, with philanthropy, with support. Um, they have just done incredible things. So we are extremely humbled and grateful to partner with Choctaw Casino and Resort. Make sure, I know you know it, it's just a short drive of 75. Go check them out. And now back to the episode. Second great untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. <laughs> I know this one's going to speak to you. So from the book, he says, always trust your feelings. You've heard that version of, you've heard versions of it from a variety of sappy novels and pop psychology gurus. But the second great untruth, the untruth of emotional reasoning is a direct contradiction of much of ancient wisdom. Sages in many societies have converged on the insight that feelings are always compelling, but not always reliable. Often they distort reality deprive us of insight, and needlessly damage our relationships. Happiness, maturity, and even enlightenment require rejecting the untruth of emotional reasoning and learning instead to question our feelings. The feelings themselves are real, and sometimes they alert us to truths that our conscious mind has not noticed, but sometimes they lead us astray. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's no doubt. And this is something that I just, man, like you said, this this gets my blood boiling when you start talking about, oh, no, just follow your feelings. Like, <laughs> your truth is, is the actual truth. It's, 
No, what you're doing is you're disregarding experiences that generations and generations and generations and generations prior to you have learned from. Like, and we're all guilty of it. When my parents were going through it, like when I was in junior high and I was, you know, going through a, a social issue with friends or like a girlfriend, like my parents, you don't get it. You have no idea what I'm going through right now. No, dummy. They were in junior high too. They actually went through it as well. And when parents give advice, it's no, 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 you don't know. And we disregard the fact that, look, they've experienced and they failed and they learned. But when you start, when you start listening to just your emotions, it's like all we're going to do is repeat the same cycle over and over and over. And that's a hindrance of progress mm -hmm. because there are truths out there. If you do X, Y will happen. Like that's what happened. Like there, there are truths out there. Mm -hmm. Like if you turn on the stove and you put your hand on it, you are going to burn your hand. <laughs> but it's like, oh, you know what? I feel like the red is really pretty. So I just want to put my hand, ah, you know what I mean? It's right. like, if, if we just disregard that there's, there's been, um, there have been truths that have been uncovered over the thousands of years that humans have been on the planet and we disregard that, that's just stupid. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, like I know my kids, I can't say that word for my kids. Dad, that's a bad word. But it's just, it's, it's ignorant. And it's lazy because I don't want to follow what you say. It's my, in, in my heart, I feel it's this way. No. Hold on, I've got to be careful. No, you know what? Screw it. <laughs> Just say it. Hey, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. A man and a woman are the only two people that can make a baby. I'm not saying if you choose not to. But don't try to tell me and don't go, try to go create like, look, it, people were created that way. Look, if you choose another lifestyle, look, that's your choice. Hey, if you're happy, great. But don't say, no, 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 we were all created to just choose. No. If we were created to just pick whatever we wanted, then men could have babies with men and women could have babies with women. But you can't. I'm told that, that's possible. Now. That is a truth. That is no. Um, you can maybe, I don't know. You're not passionate. I don't know. And you're not passionate about this at all. I don't you? know. That's just, it just bothers me when you disregard, one, science, and when you disregard actual truths, because you feel a certain way. No offense, bro, but you don't run the universe. <laughs> you are not the center of the universe. Like, that is, that is not your role. Like, there are truths that are bigger than you. I feel very unsafe by your words right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know what? Because your parents coddled you. <laughs> You're soft. There was a doctor, I heard about this, about the whole um, gender thing, and they asked, you know, when the baby was born, you know, what, what gender it was. And, and he was, I don't know. He hasn't chosen or it, ha it hasn't chosen. Yet. Oh, <laughs> dude, there's a, the, we can't the, know. Cause it hasn't model, chosen yet. The model, Emily Rod Rodajanowski, or uh, she's know. like an actress model and she's uh, same kind of deal. Like they get, they, they get to one, choose their name. And then they also get to yeah. no. Was your baby born with a penis? It's a dude. Like, it is a man. It is a male. It has all of the genetic and biological parts. Like, you can't just say, oh, what is it, a boy or a girl? Well, they don't know yet. They haven't decided. No, that's an emotional decision. There's no truth to that. Right. Sorry. You're a bigot. I know. God, you know what? And we're probably going to get canceled for this, so I apologize, Ben. It's been a good run. <laughs> Like, and I, again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, look, if you go through life 
and and you have the information, you have the experience, you have the maturity to decide to go one way or the other, like that is your choice. Look, and you may think differently than me, and that's okay. Like, love you all the same. But like to say that a definite truth is untrue because you feel something differently, right. like that's just ignorant. That's, that's a great way to sum it up. Because there are people who do mentally struggle with identity and what I, I, I am this, but I feel this way. Yeah. But I guess it does play into what you're saying. And it's a flat earth people. There's it's more saying, education around yeah. that. But yeah. there is true, because I have known parents who have kids that have gone through this. And it, yeah. and it puts a different perspective on it when you know somebody has gone through yes. it. And we're talking about the transigu- yeah. transigu- Trans- it, it I feel bad for those because it truly does mess up your mind. No doubt. You but, but your yeah. overall point is the truth yeah. is there's, ma- there's a male and female. That's the truth. There, there is, there Regardless is how you feel about DNA. it. DNA. Now, yeah. look, if there is an emotional if there's an emotional conflict to mm-hmm. it and I have like, hey, like I'm really struggling because like I'm attracted to these people or mm-hmm. I want to dress this way or I, like I understand that there's there there are nuances, there's nuances, nuances to the discussion in every scenario. Right. Right. And and there are things. But again, what we're doing in this culture is we're saying we're allowing a three year old to decide if he wants to wear a dress or uh, or shorts because he gets to decide. Right. Do you think that that child has the ability to know truth from untruth? No, they don't. Right. So don't give them that opportunity. Right. And that's what just like, it drives me crazy. And so what we're doing is, is not only are we just allowing, but now we're pushing. Right. We're pushing our children into a uh, never-ending cycle of depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. of challenges of sickness uh of ultimate mediocrity and failure because we're not building resilience we're allowing them to just flow through life without guiding their feet like here's the here's the thing is like just look at nature and you look at let's just use bears as as an example a mother bear naturally will teach her cubs how to hunt and then you're off on your own what happens when cubs get separated from their moms and don't learn how to hunt? They die quickly. They die. Same thing with kids. Is We are in such a coddling culture that we don't have to. But guess what? You, yeah, Physically, they may not die, but there are, you are making their life a whole lot harder by not actually preparing them what life is really like. Yeah. yeah. It's like we talked about yesterday, the law of... Least resistance, yeah. the law of, you know, least effort. In the moment, it's less effort to let them choose and yeah. feel how they want to feel. But what are the ramifications down the road? We're not yeah. thinking about that yet. Yeah. All right, so before we get canceled, let's move on. <laughs> he wraps up this section with the nine common cognitive distortions. And these nine distortions are sprinkled throughout the rest of the book. And a lot of the, the baseline of the issues that we're seeing today Number one, emotional reasoning. Letting your feelings guide your inter- interpretation of reality. I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. Number two, catastrophizing. Focusing on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as most likely. For example, it would be terrible if I failed. Number three, overgeneralizing. Perceiving a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. 
This generally happens to me. I seem to fail at a lot of things. Number four, dichotomous thinking, also known variously as black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, or binary thinking. We talked about this last week. Viewing events or people in an all or nothing term. I get rejected by everyone or I was, it was a complete waste of time. Number five, mind reading. Assuming that you know what people think without sufficient evidence of their thoughts. Number six, labeling. Assigning, a global negative tra- assigning global negative traits to yourself or others, often in the service of dichotomous thinking. Number, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven, negative filtering. You focus almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positives. Number eight, discounting positives. Claiming that the positive things you or others do are trivial so that you can maintain a negative judgment. And then number nine, blaming. Focusing on the other person as the source of your negative feelings, you refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. And so, like I said, those are the nine common cognitive distortions that we'll see sprinkled out throughout the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, He talks about, um, he says, there's no universally accepted definition of quote-unquote critical thinking, but most treatments of the concept include a commitment to connect one's claims to reliable evidence in a proper way. It is not acceptable for a scholar to say, you have shown me convincing evidence that my claim is wrong, but I still feel that my claim is right, so I'm sticking with it. When scholars cannot rebut or reconcile disconfirming evidence, they must drop their claims or else lose the respect of their colleagues. As scholars challenge one another within a community that shares norms of evidence and argumentation and that holds one another accountable for good reasoning, claims get refined, Theories get, gain nuance, and our understanding of truth advances. <laughs> and so that's how he ends that section. And then the last section that we'll end the, today's episode with, the third great untruth. And this one's a big one, especially right now. The untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. And he opens up this section talks about, talking about groups and tribes. And he says... The bottom line is that the human mind is prepared for tribalism. Human evolution is not just the story of individuals competing with other individuals within each group. It's also the story of groups competing with other groups, sometimes violently. Tribalism is our evolutionary endowment for banding together to prepare for intergroup conflict. When the tribe switch is activated, we bind ourselves more tightly to the group. We embrace and defend the group's moral matrix, and we stop thinking for ourselves. In tribal mode, we seem to go blind to arguments and information that challenge our team's narrative. Merging with the group in this way is deeply pleasurable. But being prepared for tribalism doesn't mean we have to live in tribal ways. Any kind of intergroup conflict, real or perceived, immediately turns tribalism up, making people highly attentive to signs that reveal which team another person is on. Conditions of peace and prosperity, in contrast, generally turn down the tribalism. When a community succeeds at turning down everyone's tribal circuits, there is more room for individuals to construct lives of their own choosing. There is more freedom for a creative mixing of people and ideas. Almost done. So what happens to communities such as a college or increasingly high school when when distinctions between groups are not trivial and arbitrary and when they are emphasized rather than downplayed? What happens when you train students to see others and themselves as members of distinct groups defined by race, 
gender, and other socially significant factors, and you tell them that those groups are eternally engaged in a zero-sum conflict over status and resources. I know that was a lot to break down. But basically, what happens when you start to tell kids that we're all defined by our race, we're all defined by our beliefs, we're all defined? What happens when you raise a generation to believe that? Any thoughts on that? Well, let's go back to the... Uh, let's go back to the the tribalism and we have this polarizing distinction between conservatives and liberals right um and what it's done is it feels good to identify and when we're talking to the people on that in that same tribe yeah yeah just gas it up right gas up the flame and we listen to podcasts and we and we watch and tv networks and we and we read books that that reemphasize that but what what happens is, is there's the absence of critical thinking. Is we just associate with a tribe and we're in that and anything different is wrong and we don't want to hear anything else. And we're and that's that's where we're at. Whether yep. you're conservative, Republican, red, blue, doesn't matter. Everybody is and I say everybody, and here's what he just said is this right, we're generalizing, right? <laughs> um, we have a problem with many people not actually thinking for themselves, just associating, and then discrediting just because they think differently. And then also, um, I mean, really, we're, we're, we're missing education because we're not educating ourselves on, okay, both sides of it. So when we go vote, it's, okay, I'm this, I'm going to vote red. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, I feel this way, I'm going to vote all blue. Yep. And we're not understanding. And what we're doing, man, is we are crippling our country yep. because there is a lack of critical thinking. And there are leaders that have actually stepped up that may, may align with this because of some beliefs, but may lean the other way on, on other beliefs. But because they're identified as this and they're in the other tribe, right. I, I don't want anything to do yep. with you. So we're missing out on, on opportunities. So then, I mean, and then we go to the high school example and identifying, hey, that's what, that's how you're defined. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets into identity politics. Yeah. In the next section. Like yeah. What you're talking about. It's just, it's just a really slippery slope. And, and it really, um, one thing that I do love about my experience with football is, is that, the locker room looks very different. A lot of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. a lot of different people. But it's not, hey, uh, you're a you're a black dude from South Central LA, or you know, you're a white dude from Connecticut, or you're a black dude from Atlanta, or you know, you're a Hispanic guy from Phoenix. It's we're all brothers and we treat each other as so. Yeah. So it's mutual respect across the board for the most part. I'm not saying that every You don't yeah, you're not going to like all it's never guys, it's never perfect, but, right? But the idea of in the military I would say is is similar. Yep. Um is hey, listen, like we are all brothers here, brothers and sisters. Um because we are all moving towards a greater purpose. We've lost the idea of an entire country moving towards the same purpose freedom, liberty, uh, 
prosperity, yep. right? Those are the three things that this country was built on. And we have lost the idea of, hey, as a country, we need to move that direction together. And if we're going to do it together, we have to, we have to remove these distinctions between tribes. We're all one. Mm -hmm. We are all one. Now, anytime you're running an organization, whether it's private, public, whatever, right? You've got to have the different, you know, you got your federal, you got your state, so forth and down. But so in order to get things done, but that's more task oriented and that's more specific. But as a country, we have to understand that, listen, we are all in this together, hopefully chasing the same pursuits. And if you're not, y'all can go somewhere else. <laughs> but we, I think for the most part, our country is we all want the same things, but because we have identified as these tribes, as he, as he mentions here, now we're more concerned instead of chasing freedom and chasing liberty and chasing prosperity. Now we're more worried about, am I right? Or are you wrong? Mm -hmm. And it's the petty, it's the petty things that now we're getting stuck on and it's, and it's prohibiting any kind of growth or any, any kind of movement towards those original goals that we, that we started when we separated from England. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're talking about is he breaks it down into two kinds of identity politics. Uh, and he opens it with this. He says, identity politics is a contentious term, but its basic meaning is simple. Jonathan Rausch, a scholar at the Brookings Institute, defines it as political mobilization organized around group characteristics such as race, gender, and sexuality, as opposed to party ideology or pecu pecuniary interest. Is that the right? Is that how you say it? Pecuniary? <laughs> he notes that in America, this sort of mobilization is not new, unusual, un-American, illegitimate, nefarious, or particularly left-wing. Politics is all about groups forming coalition to achieve their goals. Identity can be mobilized in ways that emphasize an overarching common humanity while making the case that some fellow human beings are, defined digni are denied dignity and rights because they belong to a particular group, or it can be mobilized in ways that amplify our ancient tribalism and bind people together in shared hatred of a group that serves as the unifying common enemy. And so he breaks it down into two kinds of identity politics, common humanity identity politics and common enemy identity politics. So common humanity identity politics says the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King epitomized what we'll call common humanity identity politics. He was trying to fix a gaping wound centuries of racism that had been codified in the law in southern states and in the customs, habits, and institutions across the country. Part, part of Dr. King's genius was that he appealed to the shared morals and identities of Americans by using the unifying languages of religion and patriotism. He repeatedly used the metaphor family, referring to people of all races and religions as brothers and sisters. He spoke often of the need for love and forgiveness Harkening back to the words of Jesus and echoing ancient wisdom from many cultures. King's approach made it clear that his movement would not destroy America. It would repair and unite it. Sorry, just flip pages here. This is the way to win hearts, minds, and votes. You must appeal to the intuitive and emotional processes as well as the reasoning. That sums it up perfectly. No. Talks about Dr. King's approach could have very easily been bitterness, could have very easily been hate, could have very easily been division. Mm -hmm. 
But he chose to approach it as, hey, if we unify and attack this together, we're ultimately going to accomplish the goal. He was able to speak to people from all different backgrounds and beliefs because he shared a unifying message. As opposed to what we're doing now, we think we can win people over by spewing hate towards them or by spewing divisional comment. Like this is big on, I love his podcast or I enjoy his podcast because it's good news, but Ben Shapiro is actually pretty guilty of this. I don't know if you ever listened to Ben Shapiro. Yeah. He's a, he's a right leaning uh, political um, podcaster. podcaster. Yep. And he's part of his shtick, part of his, the way he grows his following part of the way he fuels his business is by identifying how stupid, how bad and how terrible everybody on the left side of the aisle is. Now, he makes some interesting points, but his entire message is a very divisive yep. message. Yep. There's not a lot of unity being, because it serves his interest to point out how yeah. flawed they are. Mm -hmm. And again, I appreciate a lot of his points. He's a very intelligent person, but he's not trying to unify anybody with his message. That's right. He's saying we're right and you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, the us versus them mentality it works for a little bit. Think about country's history when we actually united post in, in my lifetime, post 9-11, right? But there was an enemy. Yep, common enemy. Yep. There's a common enemy. And the problem with that is that that faded. That faded, but the hate of that didn't. Right. So there was a certain, there was a certain um, type of people that still are feeling the effects of that, that had nothing to do with it just because of how they look. Yep. Right? And then the pandemic is another, the, the virus was the enemy. And yes, at the very beginning of it, we rallied, but the, the enemy aspect of it, and I know you're about to read it, but the enemy aspect, that fades to me. Like that's not a consistent, but we are always- It's not sustainable. Yeah, we, always per, we can always pursue the good of humanity. There's always something there that we can better humanity and better the quality of lives. But the enemy's not always going to be there. It's good for business, right? Yeah. Ben Shapiro makes a lot of money by being controversial in that way. Twitter makes a lot of money by having people bitch, bitch and moan and argue yep. at each other. Yep. But we're not taking a macro perspective on what this is doing to our yeah. society. That's right. What are we going to look like in 50 to 100 years if we continue down the same path? That's right. We've got to get back to common humanity mm -hmm. identity politics. So he defines common enemy human, uh, identity politics. He says... The common humanity form of identity politics can still be found, but in recent years, we've seen the rapid rise of a very different form that is based on an effort to unite and mobilize multiple groups to fight against a common enemy. It activates a powerful social psychological mechanism embodied in an old Bedou Bedouin proverb. I against my brothers, I and my brother against my cousins, I and my brothers and my cousins against the world. Identifying a common enemy is an effective way to enlarge and motivate your tribe. So short-term, yes, maybe you win by gathering together with your small little tribe and attacking the common enemy. Maybe you win short-term. But again, like I said, what are we going to look like in 50 or 100 years if we continue down this path of right versus left or black versus white or rich versus poor as opposed to coming together right. and you find together? And so to wrap up the chapter... Um, he talks about, um, and I'll just read it because, you know, like I said, he, he says it better than I can. Um, so let me get there. He says, for activists seeking reform, 
The lesson is to find common ground. Marches and rallies are good for energizing your team, but as Columbia University professor of humanities Mark Lilla points out in his book, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics, they are not enough to bring about lasting change. You have to win elections to do that. And to win elections, you have to draw in a very large numbers of people from diverse groups. So I think that's the point. The real way to change things, you know, as we see it going forward, is through elections. And the way that you can get the most amount of people on your team, it goes back to the book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's by sharing a common message, by unifying rhetoric, not divis- divisive rhetoric. So that's Chaz. That's the first section of the book. Um, what do you think? What's your overall thoughts? What's your closing thoughts? Uh, I'm excited. Agree, to, disagree? I, no, I, I agree with everything. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with everything. And, you know, he brings, he brings up great points, but in reality, a lot of these are just logical. They make, they make sense. Yeah. It's not like, oh my, I never thought of that. There's nothing earth shattering no. about this. But, but the, what's great about this is that giving the reasons and examples so that we can actually um, digest it right. um, is, is incredible. And then the science behind it is, is also uh, really important. I'm, I'm excited to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. So the next section is titled Bad Ideas in Action. So basically everything we talked about today, how is that now playing out? in culture today. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. Like I said, I cannot recommend this book any more highly. We're not going to go through every single detail of this book. So it's really best that you go out and you purchase it and you read it yourself or listen to it yourself, whichever way you consume books. Uh, because we can't pause. Not, not only can we go through the whole thing, but we don't, don't want to disrespect their book either. Yeah. So go out and support these guys and get the book. Because again, this should be mandated for all parents to read. Yeah. Good. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share. Please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. Um, all that good stuff. All that helps us reach more people. All that helps us grow a better uh, generation, yeah. the next generation yep. of kids, to fix a lot of the mistakes that we've made in the past. How can we do better and raise the next generation up? Guys, and, not, and not coddle the, Ameri- yeah, the future. Guys, American we have one America. shot at this. That's right. Let's take advantage. That's right. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Have a great rest of the day, a great weekend, and we will see you next week.